0: Today we continue our sermon series in the New Testament book of Acts, looking at Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. This is drawing to the close of what is referred to as Paul's second missionary journey, and he has just fled from Berea and has now come to the area of Athens. So let's give attention to God's word from Acts 17, starting at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And may the living God today impress upon our hearts and minds the truth of his word. Amen. Amen. Author and professor Will Willimon once described the church's current obsession of trying to connect with the modern world with this image. He said, in trying so hard to reach out to the culture, the church fell in. Connecting with the culture is a good thing. Being swallowed up by it is not. The Apostle Paul in our passage helps give a profound perspective picture of his own approach on how to connect to the culture without falling in. Paul has been leaving on short notice the recent cities he has visited. He now arrives in Athens, not as part of a planned journey, but as a layover of sorts, while he awaits his fellow missionaries to catch up with him. Athens is not the military and political power it once was when the Greek empire ruled the world. But it was still the cultural, religious, and intellectual center of the world. In our opening verse, we read, when, While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And indeed, there were in Athens countless idols to multiple gods in multiple locations of varying sizes and styles. And Paul was provoked by this. The word provoked can be distressed. Its root means to sharpen or cut. So Paul was cut in his spirit by these many idols. Well, why would he be provoked? On the one hand, Paul was provoked because he was jealous for the glory and honor of God. The presence of any idol is an offense against God because he is the one true God. Paul knew that according to the scriptures, God is provoked by idols himself. Isaiah 62 verses 2 and 3 say this. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks although I think was also provoked because he cared for people. And he knew that when people set their affections on something other than God, which is ultimately what idol worship is, it is not for their good. Isaiah 44 verse 9 says, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. This is Curious when we think about idols and what is taking place in Athens, and we might wonder, well, what does that mean for us today? We do not see many man-made idols in people's living rooms or in car dashboards today. Or do we? An idol is anything other than God that holds our hearts' affections and shapes the choices we make in life. We see that from the first two commands of the Ten Commandments. The second command is not to make an idol. But the first command is not to have any other gods before the one true God. So when you put it together, an idol is anything that competes with or takes away from our devotion to God. If we can't make it to church on a Sunday because we're too tired from our week's work, we have an idol. It's called our job we don't contribute money or time to the church because we feel we have nothing left after providing for our kids, we have an idol. It's called our children. If we do not share in fellowship or learning with other believers because we have other interests, we have an idol, whatever those other interests might be. It could be my needs, my identity, my experience. These can all become an idol. Take some time this week and think about what might be the idols that tempt you from your devotion to God. What are the idols that tempt those around you? John Calvin said we are idol factories. They are not only all around us, they are in us. And maybe those idols we do not see on a mantle in our living room or on our car dashboard are even more dangerous. We do not see them for what they are. Paul is zoned in, even consumed with a scene of idols because he sees them for what they are. In fact, that word saw, when uh, the verse says Paul saw the idols, the word, uh, it's an unusual word, or at least not the common word for to see. It's, It's the word where we get the word theorize from or perceive. The woman at the well said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. That's the same word. As to see. So Paul perceives the situation and he responds. Acts 17, verse 17. So he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. The word reasoned is, is dialogued, and he dialogued in the synagogue. That's the same approach he's had in all the previous cities where he has gone. But Paul does not restrict himself to speaking in the synagogue. He reasons in the marketplace. The word for marketplace is agora. We get the word agoraphobia from this word. It's a place for every type of exchange and interaction with other people that you could imagine. Of course, there's that basic selling of produce and things like articles of clothing, household items. But this is also the place where teaching took place. Government business was conducted. News was announced. There weren't newspapers or radios to hear the news. Uh, There would be a herald who would share the news. And of course, many discussions and debates took place at the marketplace. Paul joins in with the exchange of ideas. And this is the response, verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Epicureans were part of a philosophy that believed God existed, but that this God was not involved with the details of people's lives. He was just far removed Epicureans thought the point of life was to have pleasure. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? And then there were these Stoics, another philosophy. They they too believed God existed, but their view was God was diffused and somehow present in a way in everything, and that it was most worthy and noble to rise above emotions, other human experiences. Even today, when we say someone is a Stoic, we Refer to them as as being strong and not having being swayed by emotions. The word babbler is interesting. It means uh, literally seed picker, like a bird in the marketplace pecking crumbs. This was probably not a positive description of Paul. The passage continues. They took Paul, brought him into the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. The Areopagus would be a place in Athens where more concentrated debate and even examination took place. The Areopagus is a place, but it also refers to a council. Later, we'll hear someone who was an Areopagite. That means he was part of the council. And Paul seems to be required to go. he's going to keep on speaking about Jesus. We see this by the phrases new teaching and strange things. There was not only a, a general interest in ideas, but there was a concern that what was taught in public was not disruptive to the community. There have been periods in history like this. It may strike us as strange today, but people were concerned about ideas like Maybe today we would be concerned about a public health crisis. Bad ideas would take root, spread, and have broad, potentially deadly consequences. So here is Paul before the council in the Areopagus. Verses 22 and 23. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul went. Don't miss that. Paul went. He did not shy away from the exchange of ideas, even being examined. Paul Paul didn't think faith was simply personal and internal. We might even expect Paul at this point to say when he's being a little more challenged to to say something like, whoa, wait a minute, you know, this this message about Jesus, it's, you know, it's just kind of something personal. This This is something that gives me inner peace. If you don't accept it, you know, that's kind of up to you. Paul wasn't afraid of the truth of God's word being brought into the open even competing with other views and teachings. He wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So Paul has this boldness, but also notice he doesn't go to the other extreme. Paul doesn't come out with guns blazing, trying to blast these listeners out of the water or to attack them or or to undermine them. There There is boldness, but there is grace. And after that generally gracious introduction, Paul then continues to talk not so much about the, the reference of Bible and verse, because he knows these people aren't familiar with the stories of the Bible. He instead talks about creation and the, the truths of God that are found creation-wide. So he begins with a, with a truth that God is supreme. God is above all and cannot be confined. Verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Paul contrasts the true God with idols, the idols that are all around the city of Athens. In the Old Testament, we have a lengthy summary of the foolishness of idols. In Isaiah chapter 44, there's a a story uh, that describes a man who cuts down a tree and he takes half of the wood and burns it on a fire where he warms himself and, and cooks his food. But then the other half he shapes into an idol and bows down before it. Paul, again, is talking about biblical truth. that God is not confined to anything man can make or conceive. He is above all things. And that leads to the next truth. God is self-sufficient. He does not need man. In verse 25, Paul's talk continues. Nor is God served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God's glory is not increased by what we do or think. He's not more fulfilled if we respond to him. The persons of the Trinity, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, enjoy a perfect love. They've shared this love for all eternity from the past and into the future. And it is for our good that we seek to know God and center our lives on him. Paul continues, he talks about God's rule over man and all the nations. Verse 26, and he made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. There is a unity of people. And for the Greeks, that was striking. Greeks considered that everyone who wasn't Greek was a barbarian. But the common source of all humanity that flows from the truth of God's creating all people removes pride and the arrogance that any one group can have towards others. Again, this contrast with idols. Idols divide, and and they cannot break down the walls that divide. In fact, they increase the, the walls. Idols in history were associated with different nations and different occupations, things that divide people. The Roman Empire came up with a very wise and actually inexpensive way to control those that they conquered. In previous empires, those that had been conquered would be taken away into the, the land of the conquering nation. Well, this was labor intensive. This was expensive. The Romans had a better plan. They let people stay where they were. Those that they conquered could even continue to worship their God. They just added one clarification. They had to give devotion to the gods of Rome, including the emperor, and they had to respect other nations' gods, the gods of other people. So what happened, since each nation had its own God, the Romans knew it would be hard for a group of nations to join together and rise up against Rome. You see what's going on, what they understood? The principle that idols of false gods divide people. But it is the worship and the service of the true God that unites people. Idols of false gods divide people. The God of the Bible unites. Paul then goes on to say that this God is approachable, even personal. Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Feeling their way toward God is literally groping. It's like a person in the dark struggling to find what he knows is there. A multitude of idols is a demonstration of this groping. Now, again, Paul could have condemned them directly for this foolishness. But he highlights a potential positive side. He's speaking boldly and graciously. This, this hunger, this longing and turning to one idol after another is a sign of a supreme God who has made us to know and worship him. And as Augustine said, our hearts are restless, until they find their rest in thee. Then finally, Paul clarifies that God is Redeemer and Judge, verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God didn't ignore the presence of sin in the world, but because now of the greater fulfillment of his work of salvation with the coming of Jesus, there is now greater accountability. Greater fulfillment leads to greater accountability. That's what Paul is getting at. So there is a call to repent. But even this, this call to repentance is, is a sign of grace. Grace. Think about it. If, if God was distant from his creation, like the Epicureans thought, or if God was just kind of loosely diffused into, into all of created things, like the Stoics thought, then God could just sit back and let things go wherever they would go and turn out however they might turn out. But no, the, the call to repent is the call from the God who is real, the God who is supreme, the God who is personal, the God who is righteous, and the God who has provided salvation. The Redeemer has come, and now is the time to respond. And of course, that is just as true today as when Paul spoke those words. The resurrection is proof that God does exist. Proof of the nature of this God. The confirmation of everything the Bible says is true. And notice, the one who is the judge is the one who was raised from the dead, which means that this judge suffered death. And the one who judges is the one who has entered the same world as all people. The one who judges has endured the trials and the challenges of life. This is the Lord Jesus who came into the world, and now he lives and is the focus of life. Well, given their view of God and life, it's not a surprise. The idea of a resurrection was difficult for the council. We hear what happens next, verses 32 to 34. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. It may not seem like much, not like the day of Pentecost where thousands were converted in a single sermon, but the seed picker Paul who gathered and sowed what seemed like such small things, sowed the seed that brings life, and it would lead to a great harvest. Dionysius will become the bishop of Athens, and he will lead a thriving church. Thousands of years later today, there are still roads in the city of Athens that bear his name, and many will believe. Praise God. And many will also follow the model Paul gave of engaging the culture, the ideas, the philosophies of the world with this grace and boldness. Justin Martyr will write one of the first explanations and defenses of the Christian faith called Apologia, where we get the words apologetics. He'll send it, get this, to the emperor of Rome. He also had a lengthy dialogue with a Jew named Trifo that was filled with clarity of their differences, but with mutual respect, even great affection. John Calvin will address his great theological works, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, to the King of France. Idols that compete for the attention of our mind, idols that lure the affection of our hearts, idols that demand control of our resources can only be overcome by the greater truth of a greater affection from a God who loves, saves, and transforms us by his grace. So let us seek him and let us follow him. May it be so. Amen.